there are things that happen in our uh, in our world in our lives that sometimes we might we might look at them and say, "Man, that, that's quite the coincidence." Something that happened, you know, might be uh, might be a, just randomly thinking about someone that I don't see very often or just haven't seen in a long time, and then. Uh, what do you know, I bump into them in, in the store later that afternoon or the next day or something like that. Or, or it could be, uh, you know, it could be something like I was making breakfast this morning and my toaster broke. And then in the mail, I got a $40 refund from something and I can get a new toaster, you know, something, something like that. Or I was going to have lunch with somebody and they, they had to cancel last minute. And then, and then out of the blue, somebody else called me up and said, hey, can we do lunch? You know, I know it's last minute, but can we do lunch? And, you know, things, things like that. Or, or maybe, um, maybe you have been having a conversation with someone about some random thing, you know, talking about pillows, for example. And then, and then you know, next thing you know, on your social media feed, it's filled with advertisements for pillows. That's not coincidence. That's Google. That's Facebook spying on us. But, but, but the point is, like we've we've all experienced situations where two or more things just they 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 coincide with one another. They align in such a way that that we might term it coincidental. And 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 while I don't think that that we as Christians must drop that word from our vocabulary entirely. I do want to suggest that, that perhaps we're quicker to jump to that conclusion than we maybe ought to be. I mean, after all, if, if, if we serve and, and are loved by the, the almighty sovereign God, right, if we believe that he is truly sovereign over all things, then, then, then in those coincidental moments, perhaps we ought to ask ourselves, is God up to something here? Right? Couldn't it be that God is working in, in such, a, such a way that it stands out to us and, and grabs our attention? You know? Maybe there's other times where he's doing that in subtle ways that we, that we might, not, might not even notice. I, I would say that the book that we are going to study this morning is a strong example of, of such situations that might be termed coincidental, actually being God's guiding hand, working in ways where, where people might be unaware of what he's doing. So, so the book that we're going to look at today is the book of Esther. Esther is a book which recounts an event in Israel's history, and specifically it tells the story of how one of the feasts of Israel came to be. It tells the story of the feast uh, called Purim. Now, it all takes place during the exile of God's people. So we talked a couple weeks ago about how uh, we were in the book of Joshua. We talked about the people entering the promised land. They took possession of it. Well, because they later chose to rebel against God and they were disobedient to him, uh, God disciplined them by sending nations to defeat them and take them out of the promised land, take them to exile. It happened first in the northern portion of the land at the hands of the Assyrians, 
And then 150 years after that, the southern portion of the land, which included the city of Jerusalem, uh, th that was defeated by the Babylonians. And in both defeats, the people of God were removed from the promised land, taken into exile. Well, as, as happened all throughout history, nations rise and nations fall. And so even the mighty Babylonians eventually fell to the Persian Empire. And so the events of Esther take place during the time of the Persian Empire. It's roughly 480 B.C. And when the Persians defeated the Babylonians, they, they allowed some of the previously captured Jews to go back to their homeland, back to Jerusalem. And indeed, some did go back. Some went and rebuilt the temple in the city of Jerusalem. But the story of Esther is focused on Jews who didn't go back, Jews who were still living in exile, and specifically living in the city of Susa in the Persian Empire. And so I would encourage you to, uh, to open your Bible with me to the book of Esther. It's on page 410 in the Pew Bibles. And I'm just going to give an overview of the story of Esther, and you can kind of follow with me as I'm doing that. And then after I give the overview, we'll, we'll come back and, and talk about it. So the story begins with King Ahasuerus, or, or some translations will use the Greek name Xerxes, and because I learned it in the NIV translation, and because Xerxes is easier for me to say than Ahasuerus, I'm just going to go with Xerxes this morning. But it's the same, same person, same, uh, same king. So, so King Xerxes, uh, through this feast in which he told his wife, who was called Queen Vashti, to come to the banquet so he could show her off to uh, his guests. Um, it's probably safe to assume that what he asked of her was in some way sexual in nature. So Queen Vashti refused his request, and King Xerxes was taken aback by that development and sought advice from his wise men. The wise men were afraid that, that Vashti's defiance would, would be contagious and would spread across the Persian Empire. And so they urged Xerxes to make a display of Queen Vashti by removing her and making somebody else queen in her place. And so that's exactly what Xerxes did. And that's chapter one of the book of Esther. Chapter two tells of a Jew named Mordecai who just happened to be living in Susa at that time. Mordecai feared God. He also had taken in his orphaned younger cousin and raised her as his own daughter. And that woman is Hadassah or Esther. Esther just happened to be beautiful and she was taken by the king's official along with some other women to see who was most pleasing to the king that he might make her the next queen. And so she, Esther, underwent 12 months of preparation, and when it was her turn to go before the king, he just happened to choose her as the next queen. And, and I'm doing my best to note all of the coincidental things that, that are happening in this story, right? The, the just happened that way kind of things. So it just happened that sometime later, at the end of chapter 2, 
Mordecai overheard two men plotting to kill the king. And so Mordecai told Queen Esther. Queen Esther relayed that to the king, and the plot was diffused. And it just happened that when the event was recorded in the court documents, that Mordecai's name was included there in the record. So we'll put a pin in that, and that'll show up again later. Meanwhile, chapter 3, there's a man named Haman, who just happened to be elevated by King Xerxes to to be given a position above all the other servants, all the other king's servants. Haman, with his new position of authority, commanded that all the other servants bow down to him. Well, Mordecai, fearing God and, and bowing to God alone, refused to do what Haman told him to do, refused to bow before Haman. Um, made Haman pretty mad. And he not only wanted to kill Mordecai, he wanted to kill all of Mordecai's people in the entire kingdom. He wanted to kill all the Jews because of this one act of what he viewed act of defiance. <clears throat> so Haman came up with a plan to do so, and he convinced the king to give his approval to his plan. Mordecai, who is uh, still in contact with Esther, told her about this edict that had been written and approved by the king. And she, of course, was a Jew as well, but, but the king was not aware that she was a Jew. So Mordecai urged Esther to use her position as queen to do something about the situation. And, and I want to read specifically what, what he said to her. So if you look with me in Esther chapter 4, <clears throat> this is starting in verse uh, 13. Esther 4.13, it says, Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther. So there had been messengers going back and forth between them. Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, <clears throat> relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young, my young women will also fast, as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. So Esther decided to approach the king uninvited. And, and when King Xerxes responded favorably to her and spared her life, she asked that both he and Haman attend a feast that she was preparing for them. And during that meal, they, they did attend, during that meal, she asked for them both to attend another feast that she would hold the next day. So Haman pridefully saw this as a good sign. I mean, after all, he alone was the one invited to dine with the king and the queen. But even amidst such good fortune, he's, he's still upset over Mordecai refusing to bow down to him. I mean, he just can't get past that. So Haman went home that evening and, and he gave commands for a gallows to be built that were 75 feet high. It's pretty tall. Um, for our guests from Spain, 23 meters. So either way, feet, meters, this is a tall gallows. 
and he planned to hang Mordecai on those gallows. Well, again, it just so happened that during that night, King Xerxes could not sleep and apparently needed kind of a bedtime story read to him. So the court records were brought and they were read to him. And it just so happened that the story that was read was the account of Mordecai discovering the plot to, to take the king's life from those two men. The king was then told that Mordecai was not given any reward for, for discovering that plot and, and making it known. So again, it just so happened that as the king was pondering how to reward Mordecai, Haman walks in. The king asked Haman, what, what should I do for the person that I, I delight to honor? And well, prideful Haman thinks, man, he must be talking about me. Here I walk in, he wants to know what should I do. So, so Haman tells the king exactly how he himself would want to be honored. Haman then discovers that the reward is not for him, but it is meant for his enemy, Mordecai. And so Haman then goes to his house to mourn over the situation. He's distraught over that development of events. But, but he's then soon taken to the feast with the king and queen that's now ready. And it just so happened at the feast that the king offered to give Queen Esther anything up to half of the kingdom. He would give it to her. Queen Esther, ask whatever you want, and I'll give it to you. And she responded by saying that she wanted her life and the lives of her people spared from the person who wanted to destroy them, who, oh, by the way, just happens to be Haman, who's here at this banquet with us. So shortly thereafter, the king had left the room. Haman falls on the couch where uh, Queen Esther was sitting, and he begs for his life. And it just so happens that the king comes back into the room right then and assumes that Haman is assaulting Esther. And so Haman is sentenced to be hung, and there just happened to be gallows all ready to go that had been built upon which he could be hung. Now, at that point, even though, even though Haman is dead, the decree that he devised still remained. This decree that the Jews were to be killed on the 13th day of the 12th month. So in response to Queen Esther's plea, a second decree was given that stated that the Jews could defend themselves from anyone who sought to harm them on that day. They were free to fight back against their enemies. So that day came. It saw the Jews come out victorious over their enemies who still fought against them. And from that point forward, the Feast of Purim was observed as a remembrance of that day, of the deliverance that, they, that the Jews experienced on that day from this plot to, to completely destroy them across the empire. So that's the story of Esther. That, that's the, the historical event that, uh, that Esther records. Gives us information about, about Esther and, and Mordecai who were instrumental in helping to bring about the deliverance of the Jews at that time. But the story contains so many coincidences that a person can't really give Esther and Mordecai all the credit. Right? I mean, to do so would be to ignore all the unexpected ways in which situations coincided. So, so here's a little piece of uh, Bible trivia for you. 
Do you know what is unique about the book of Esther that sets it apart from every other book in the Bible? Anybody have a, I saw Lynn's finger first. It's the only book in the Bible where God's name is not written. God is not referenced in the book of Esther. And as a result, some then argue, well, the book shouldn't be in the Bible since, since God isn't even mentioned in it. Why, why is it there? But just because God is not named, it does not mean that he's not present. All of those that just so happens in Esther, those are pictures of God's providence in action. And, and I want to camp on that attribute of God this morning, his providence. What, what is God's providence? Providence is sometimes equated with sovereignty. You might hear people use those terms interchangeably. And, and while the two terms are related, they do speak of different things. So, so God's sovereignty, that speaks of his right and his power to do as he pleases. Um, no one can stop God when he decides to do something. He's sovereign. Um, one way to remember this, the, the root word in sovereignty is the word reign, R-E-I-G-N, like reign, rule. So God's sovereignty speaks of his reign, his rule over creation. God's providence is him bringing about his purposes by utilizing his sovereignty. Um, John Piper calls providence uh, wise and purposeful sovereignty. So another way to think about it, um, uh, the root word of providence is provide. And, and provide comes from uh, Latin terms, and specifically from the Latin vide. And vide means to see. That's why we, when we watch videos, we are, we are seeing something, right? It's, it's the same Latin root word. So vide means see. So provide, provide is to foresee. Or, or maybe better, to, to see to it. So, so God's providence is him seeing that his purposes are accomplished. That's what his providence refers to, him seeing that his purposes are accomplished. So the story of Esther is a story of God's providence. Even though he's not named, it is his hand invisibly working which sees that his purposes are accomplished, carried out. His hand was working corporately among the Jews as, as an entire people to save them from destruction. Um, his hand was also working individually in the lives of Mordecai and Esther throughout the story. Now, I, 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 we do need to note here that when it comes to God's providence, he does not work in such a way that he causes people to sin. God does not cause people to sin. God does not tempt people to sin. We see that specifically in James chapter 1. So, so in the story of Esther, God did not, it's not his providence that caused Haman to desire to kill all the Jews. It's not, God did not cause Haman to create this edict that would bring it about. His hand was not guiding Haman into evil. 
if you think about our own lives, God's providence, God, God did not cause that person to abuse you, right? God did not cause you to struggle with that addiction. God, God did not cause that, that family member, that friend to turn away from himself. He, 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 doesn't, he doesn't lead us into those kinds of things. We live in a, uh, a fallen world marred by sin. And as a result, this marred world contains pain and suffering. Now, sometimes it's the direct result of choices that we make, that we freely make. Um, but even in the midst of, of such an existence in a fallen world, God can and does see his purposes carried out. His hand is at work to bring good out of that situation. His providence is at work, not causing brokenness, but in the midst of brokenness. So God's, God's providence is, is seen all throughout Esther. Right? He sees to it that his purposes are accomplished, both in, uh, individually in Esther and Mordecai's lives, but also among his people, the Jews. God's providence is still in action today as well. He's still seeing that his purposes are accomplished. Now, there's times when those purposes are clear to us, aren't there? Or maybe even if they're unclear initially, they, they become clear soon. And in those times, I, I think it's easier to, to give God praise and to trust him as he works because it makes sense to us. We can see what he's doing and how he's doing it. But then there's other times in our lives where, where God's purposes and, and what he is accomplishing doesn't make any sense to us. We might look at the situation and, and struggle to see God's providence in all of it. And I think about uh, last week, we, we focused on the Gospel of Mark. And I think about the disciples and, and surely how they were in that place when Jesus was talking about dying. And then when, when Jesus hung on the cross and his dead body was placed in a tomb, <clears throat> they didn't understand right then what was happening. Right, how God was working. There was, there was confusion. They were fearful over what was taking place. <clears throat> but in that situation, just a few short days, uh, it, it, was, it was going to be just a few short days until Jesus rose from the dead and then their questions would be answered. Right? They, they would have a clearer picture of how God was working. Jesus asked his disciples to trust him and then he proved their trust to be well-placed when he walked out of the tomb. Um, I think about Esther, uh, the difficulties she faced in her life. Right? She must have had those questions as well. For, for starters, she was a Jew living in exile. And she was not one of the ones chosen to return to Jerusalem. She was physically far removed from the promised land. She was not able to go and worship at the temple, which had just been rebuilt about 25 to 35 years before this story. Like she wasn't able to do that. And then at some point, both her father and her mother died. And I have to believe in the midst of that hardship, she probably questioned God's providence. God, why, why would you allow such a thing 
to happen in my life. I mean, she was left vulnerable in a time where there weren't many safety nets for that type of situation. And then, even though Mordecai took her as his own daughter and provided for her as a father would, Esther faced additional upheaval when, when she was forcefully taken from her home and taken to the palace with other young women from the city. <clears throat> I mean, King Xerxes seems to have been a, a sexually addicted individual. And, and I have to believe Esther wondered how God's providence was working in the midst of that kind of evil. I think we can assume that she didn't know at those points in her life how God would accomplish his purposes in her and through her. His providence really was invisible. And I think, I think God's name not appearing in the book is perhaps descriptive of what Esther might have felt as she faced those hardships. And we might read Esther and say, God, where are you? Your name's not in here. Esther might have looked at her life and said, God, where, where are you? What, what, what are you doing? How, how are you working in the midst of this? And maybe you and I can relate to that, relate to what Esther must have felt. Perhaps we can relate based on past experiences in our lives. Perhaps we can relate based on something we're facing now. We ask the question, God, where, where are you? What are you doing? God, why have you allowed this illness into my body? God, why, why am I in this difficult job? God, why is my good friend moving away from the area? God, why aren't you working in my child's life, my grandchild's life, in the way that I want you to? God, why'd you, why'd you allow my family member, why'd you allow my friend to die? God, why did you allow that painful situation to take place in my past? I mean, uh, all, of those, uh, all of those specific questions lead to the general question of, God, are you, are you there? Are you, are, are you present? Are you working? I can't see it. What are you doing, God? And, and similar to how can't find God's name in the book of Esther, we might be asking that. God, where's the evidence, we might say, God, of what you're doing in my own life here? And, and can we just be honest and say that, that we've asked those questions or something similar to that at some point in our life? I don't think we need to hide that. Okay, we've been there. We've asked those questions. Man, I, if I could summarize the past year or so in my own life into a question, I think it'd be, God, what are you doing? What are you doing, God? What, I, I don't see it clearly, as clearly as I want to. It doesn't make sense to me like I want it to. It's hard to be in a place like that. I don't like to be in a place like that. I don't think any of us probably do. But even so, in the midst of that, God is present and he is working. You know, in the story of Esther, we can rejoice that that was true, that God was present, God was working, and we can rejoice in the fact that, that God provided Esther with a Mordecai. He provided her with, with someone who, I mean, Mordecai didn't just adopt Esther as his own daughter, but he also encouraged her in the midst of her hardship and uncertainty. All right, in those verses that I read in chapter four, Mordecai urged Esther to consider 
whether all she had faced up to that point might be used by God to bring about the deliverance of God's people. He encouraged her to, to take this wider view of things. Uh, you know, I, think, I think we often default to looking at our own individual circumstances and, and question what kind of good God can bring out of it. But as Mordecai encouraged Esther, I think so too, we, we ought to consider how God might be working in our own lives to, to bring about his purposes in his grand story. Consider not just how God can bring about good for us individually, but, but for others as well. And in essence, Mordecai urges Esther to view her story, not as just a whole bunch of, you know, it just so happens, but, but as something in which God was bringing about his good purposes. I mean, Romans eight twenty eight says that for those who love God, all things work together for good. And we as Christians can throw around that promise in trite ways sometimes. I mean, we can. We, we can jump to that promise without truly lamenting with someone and sitting with them in their sorrow and grief. But, but even though we might sometimes do that, it, it doesn't negate the reality of, of that promise. God is at work for good. And it doesn't mean that God is only focused on the end goal and doesn't really care about what happens on the journey to get there. That, that, is, that is not the case either. God is with us every step of the way, and he rejoices when we rejoice. He mourns when we mourn. The, the, the pain that hurts us hurts him as well. But even when we can't see it or don't understand it, God is present with us and is providentially at work for good. And, and so because that truth is, it's difficult to rest in that truth in the midst of hardship, isn't it? it it's hard to look at what takes place and, and, and to, to at times remember that. And so we need, we need a Mordecai in our life who will encourage us and challenge us in that way. We, we need someone who's for us and who loves us enough to, to gently but firmly say, perhaps God allowed you to be here for such a time as this. You know, we need someone who will point to the providence of God. And if you have that kind of person in your life, I encourage you be open, be honest with them. Share your questions and your confusion and your pain so that they can give you that encouragement, so that they can speak those words of remembrance. I mean, um, God's truths, his promises, they fill the pages of the Bible, and they are accessible to us all the time. But in those times where we're struggling, sometimes we, we need someone to verbally speak it. We just need someone to reinforce what God says to us. We need a Mordecai in our life to remind us that God is present with us and that he's bringing about his good purposes. We need that kind of person in our life. And, and, and the flip side of that is we need to be a Mordecai to other people as well. We need to do that same thing. Be investing in those kind of relationships and speaking that truth when, when it's needed. And, and I would just say, if you, if you don't have that kind of person in your life, can I strongly encourage you to, to seek out someone who would fit that role and, and, and build into that 
relationship. Bring someone into your life who will remind you of God's providence, especially when you're experiencing pain and confusion. I can't spell out in detail how God's providence is, is showing itself in your life. I can't even spell that out in my own life <laughs> in perfect detail. But I know I've been blessed to have people who have spoken into my life, who've reminded me, that, that reminded me who God is, reminded me that God is at work for good. And, and if you'll let me, I'd like to be that person for you today as well, to, to just remind you that God's, God's hand of providence, it, it might be as invisible as it's ever been to you. But it's there. He's there. He is at work. Things aren't just happening without purpose. You can trust God. He's not going to leave you. He's not going to forsake you. He's going to bring about his good purposes. Um, he loves you, and he's going to accomplish in you and through you what he has for you. So you can trust him in that. I can trust him in that. And we, we can remind each other of that. Right? Even when God's name, his presence, isn't jumping off the page like we might want it to, it's not that he's not there. He's very much there working. His presence is there and his purposes are being carried out. So we can trust him in that. Would you stand with me? Let's come to this God. And come to him no matter where we find ourselves presently. If we can quickly and easily point to his presence or if we're struggling to at the moment, we can still come to him. So let's do that. Heavenly Father, I, I thank you for, um, for the truth of, of who you are for the truth of your love for us, your presence in our lives. God, we, we read that in your word. We can know that intellectually. But we face times where it's hard to hang on to that. It's hard to rest in that. And you know that. You know what we face. It's Nothing's a surprise to you. God, would you, in those moments especially remind us that you are present and that you are working, that your purposes will not be thwarted. God, would you help us to rest in that? Would you, would you help us to remind each other of that? God, that that's one of the, the roles of the church. That's one of the reasons that you've brought us together, is to be that, that reminder and encouragement to one another. So would you help us to do that in our conversations, in our interactions with one another? Give us good discernment to speak those truths. God, I thank you that, that the end of the story is ultimate good, and it is complete good, and that we can have hope in that. So God, would you, would you increase our hope in that? Would you increase our trust in that? Would you give us what we need in this present time where we're not there just yet? God, as we come now to worship you in song again, you're worthy to be praised.
You are worthy to be worshipped, even, even for anyone here now who, who would willingly say, I'm struggling to see God in this. God, would you give them the words this morning as we proclaim who you are through these lyrics? Would you, would you speak them to their heart? Remind them of your presence and of your goodness and of your providence. God, I pray this in your name. Amen.